The first Roman numeral is the primeval events. Primeval is just like the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. as before history was really truly recorded. This is going to be chapters 1 all the way through 1126. The Abraham story actually starts at the very end of chapter 11. The point of this I kind of already highlighted is, first, that God is going to establish himself as unique to all the other gods. Jesus come out of Egypt, and they've seen this God do amazing things that no other God has done. But at the same time, plagues in the parting of the Red Sea is amazing and awesome, but you don't really see character there. Now Moses needs to show them what this character of this God is. When they begin to first read this, the first point that's being made is that Yahweh is different from all those gods that you were with in Egypt for 400 years for, give or take a couple hundred years. The second point that this section is going to make is that the image, what the image of God is, and what that means, and what, what it doesn't mean to be the image of God, both in who you are and what you're supposed to do. And the uniqueness of that, too. If your God is unique to all other gods, then that makes the creation of humanity unique to all other people's perspective of humanity. Because not only is our God unique, but the way that we view ourselves in humanity is completely unique to the way that everybody else views themselves as humanity. They're still just as unique as we are. It's just the way that they view themselves, the way that their God or their religion taught them who they are is different than the way that God is going to teach us who we are. Man has more value in Christianity than any other religion. And that's important too. And then the next point is how we failed, how we failed to be the image. So this section, chapter 1 through 11, is basically going to make the point that God is unique, He's made us as His image, and how that image failed to be the image of God. But at the same time, that God has not left us in our sin. Now you're not going to see a lot of that in the first 11 chapters. The main point is that we are sinners. But you're going to see this undercurrent of that God has not left us there. God has not left us there. That's going to explode in chapter 12 with the, with the calling of Abraham and into the rest of the stuff. So, um, so right now, who God is, what the image was meant to be, and how it failed. That brings us to the first letter A, which is the creation of the sky and land, or the creation of the heavens and earth. And that's chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verses 3. I'm going to ask you to forget everything that you've ever learned about whether it's a seven-day literal creation or seven or whatever, to forget about the scientific uh, debate and all that kind of stuff. This is what I'm going to say. Genesis in the Bible is not scientific. It is never meant to communicate who God is and how things are on a scientific level. There is, there is a lot of gaps in the creation account. How do you have a formless and empty void that is also a watery abyss? That doesn't scientifically make sense. You can't have a watery abyss that's round. At the same time, it's also a vacuum and a void. That doesn't make sense. That's not scientific. How do you have light before there, there's sun, the moon, and the stars? Light is created in day one. The sun, the moon, and the stars come in on day four. You're like, well, it was God's light. Yeah, but that's not scientific. You have vegetation growing before there's, you have light and all, you have all these things that are just absent and, and lacking. 
And you're going to find out too, nowhere does God create darkness and water. It's already there. Okay, that's not very scientific. <laughs> and so you need to remember that this is not a scientific account. This is a theological account for two reasons. First, the ancients didn't think like us. They don't care about the origins of the world. They only care about how, why things are and how they work. They were more interested in function. One, who is the authority that I go to when I want healthy children, when I want crops, when I want rain? Who do I go to? Who controls that? That's what they're first and foremost interested. Then, how does this all function so I don't die in a famine or starvation or unhealthy children? That's all they cared about. They didn't have time to get a book on how things work. They didn't care about that kind of stuff. So first and foremost, that's, that's a post-enlightenment 1700s European way of thinking. If you go over to the East today, even in 2017, you're, they don't care about that stuff. Okay, they're starting to because as America and the internet is making the world smaller, but they're more interested in, even if you go to Chinese and Japanese and African stories and that kind of stuff, they're more interested in how things work. Why are the things the way they are? Why do people dump you when you're in love with them? All that kind of stuff. That's what they're more interested in. Two, that doesn't really change my life. Okay, the scientific account of how things are created doesn't really alter my life that much. Now, it can on some sense of hygiene, maybe that kind of stuff, but it doesn't change who God is. It doesn't make God more real to me when I'm learning about when did he exactly, did he create the protons and the electrons and form them together? That doesn't affect who I am as a sinner and how I become saved. And there's a lot of stuff that's lacking. I mean, you think about your science textbooks, they're really thick. You've got two chapters in Genesis. Okay, so it's not a detailed account. Now, what I will say this, there, there is science and there is history in Genesis and it is all accurate because God is the author of all things and he is truth and all truth is God's truth. But the focus is not scientific account. Just like if you're reading a history book, it might talk a little bit about Darwin's theory of evolution but it's not interested in the scientific nature of that. It's interested in who Darwin is and how he developed it. If you're reading a history, um, so if that's you're reading a history book. If you're reading a science book, it's not going to give you a whole lot about Darwin's life. It's going to be more interested in the science. Neither one is lying or deceiving you or inaccurate. It's just that's not their focus. So you need to remember, this isn't a science versus God debate, Bible debate. This is science and God compatible. Because here's the thing. Science cannot answer questions about who is God. Science is based on observation. It's based on the five senses. It cannot answer who God is. It cannot answer who you are in your essence and your being. It can tell you who you are in your nervous system and your, your cardiovascular system, but it cannot answer who you are. It cannot answer what is your purpose in life. It cannot deal with your emotions. It cannot explain why you have emotions, all that kind of stuff. It cannot answer those metaphysical things. All it can answer is the material realm, why things function, that kind of stuff. It can't tell you what the purpose of creation is. The Bible is not interested in answering all those questions. The Bible is interested in who you are, who God is, what is your purpose, how do you find meaning and significance in life and safety. 
And so in that sense, they're not at odds with each other. They're compatible. They're just interested in two different things. And so they're two sides of the coin. And all if you want a scientific debate on God creating the world, it's there. It's in science. Go to the Creation Museum, all that kind of stuff. There's tons of stuff to argue as God as the author of creation because God is the author of science. But if you want a theological reason why God is the center of the universe and why everything, then that's the Bible. So Genesis is not going to answer all your questions. It's going to probably create a lot more questions. What it is primarily answering is, who is God? Why did he create? And to a certain extent, how he created, but not in a how it works kind of a sense, but in a nature of his being kind of a sense. And then what is your relationship with him? The Bible is interested in relationships. That brings us to verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the first question that is asked here is, is God creating here? Is this an act of creation in the sense that God created the heavens and the earth? There, on the, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he began to create things on the six days. Or is this the summary? Like, the name of the story is Sea Spot Run. And then, that's not the story, that's just the name of the story. It's a summary of the story. Because Spot's going to do a whole lot of running in that story. But it's not until you get into the story you realize that Spot's not running yet, but he will begin to run, and then he does a lot of running. And so, that's the summary to the story. That's the debate, is, is this God creating the heavens and the earth, and then he keeps creating more things? Or is this a summary that in the day that God created the heavens and the earth, now let me tell you how he did that. Does that make sense? Now, if you see this as God creating the heavens and the earth, there's a problem with that. The first major problem is the word earth here, heavens, is shemayim. And shemayim can be plural or singular. Whenever you see the word shemayim in the plural, it always refers... Now, shemayim actually is a plural word. It's plural all the time. But the way that you determine whether it's plural or singular is by the modifiers. So when all the adverbs and all the verbs are all plural, then it's a plural word. If they're all singular, then it's a singular word, just like los amigos. It's the los takes on amigos. And even if you didn't have the ending of amigo, you would still know as plural masculine because of the loss. And so the reality is it's a plural word. So when all the modifiers are plural, it refers to the sky that we can see. When they're all singular, it refers to heaven where God dwells. Here, they're plural, which means he created the sky. And the word here for earth is eretz, which is the same word for land. Now what's interesting is God's going to create the sky in verse 8, and he's going to create the land in verse 10. So if he created in verse 1, did he create them twice? If you take verse 1 as an act of creation, then that means he created the sky and the land, and then he created the sky and the land again. That doesn't make sense. Now some people take that view, and they say that he created the earth, and then Satan fell and destroyed the earth, and he had to recreate it again. But very few people take that view, and it has a lot of problems with that view. And the biggest problem is a fall and a war of Satan in heaven between verse 1 and 2. That's a lot to assume. <laughs> okay? You would think God would kind of like, oh, by the way, somebody screwed it up. At least something like that. Because, so that's, there's a problem there. The other point is, 
If God is creating on day one, He creates, day two, He creates, then why isn't verse one day one? What is God doing when He creates in verse one, and then all of a sudden He says, on day one, I created this? Well, well, then what's that? That doesn't make sense. It would make more sense for God to make verse one the first creation day. And then three would be the second creation day, if He's truly creating. And the other thing is that this is how God often starts stories. He'll say, this is the account of Isaac. And he'll start the story. Now, the day that God created the heavens and the earth is a summary. God uses summaries a lot in the Bible. Okay, even when you get into Kings and Samuel, you're going to see a lot of stories introduced with a phrase that kind of summarizes the entire story. The day that God tested Abraham. That's a summary of the story. He's not saying he's testing Abraham right then and there in that first verse on chapter 22. He's saying this is all about that. So God often starts stories with summary. So it makes sense that a book about beginnings begins with a summary of a story. And so most scholars agree that this is a summary. So this isn't the beginning of creation. In the beginning, in the beginning, God, this is the most important theological point. Genesis is making the point that God has always existed. Every, if you read the creation accounts that I gave you, they all begin with a, the beginning of a God. There was a day that that God did not rule over the planet. There was a day that that God had to fight a war to gain his throne. And then he was able to create or do something. The gods all came into existence raw. Well, there was a day that he did not exist. And then he willed himself into existence, however that works. Okay? The reality is, there are always origin stories for all the gods and all the creation accounts. But in Genesis, it just says, in the beginning, God. Period. There's no origin story. The Bible makes no attempt to answer your question, what was before God? Uh, how could God be there forever? Like Those are great questions, but the Bible makes no attempt to answer them. Because it's not science. It's theology. And the theology is God is always. Period. And so the first thing that it's making is unlike all those other pagan counts, which means if you're a Jew, the very first three words, you're already being told how God is different. You're already being told how God is unique. Because there is no other being that doesn't have an origin like Yahweh does. In the beginning, beginning doesn't mean the beginning of time, the beginning of a thing. This is not the beginning. This is the beginning of a period. Okay, so you would say like, well, in the beginning of Israel's existence, or the beginning when Israel became a nation. Well, that's not the beginning of Israel. The beginning of Israel is Abraham. But Israel begins, so to speak, with the Exodus. The beginning just refers to the beginning of the story. This is the beginning. Once upon a time, there was a woman. That's not the beginning of history. That's just the beginning of the story. So we have no idea what was before this story. How much time was there? There probably wasn't time, because time is a a dimension. It's created, and God is creating all things. This is just saying, this is the beginning where God wants to start telling you things. Because when this begins, we know that angels exist already. We know that God is already there. And we know that angels exist already because in Job 3, we're told that the angels were singing the praises of God as He created the world. This is not the beginning of God doing things. This is not the beginning of God creating things. The angels have already been created. Cherubim, seraphim have already been created. And whatever else is up there that we don't know about. This is just the beginning of where God would like to begin our relationship with him. That's the beginning. So don't think time. Think 
This is the beginning of this point, this story that God is making. And then he created. This is the, the Hebrew word bara, um, or baru. And baru means something fresh, new, original. It does not mean out of nothing. Unfortunately, that's a misunderstanding. Yes, it is true that God can create out of nothing, but this word is used of the create, when God created Israel. Well, he didn't create Israel out of nothing. Israel already ex- those humans already existed. They were already people. So this is used of other things. So this, the point is something fresh and original. The only time this word is ever used is with God as a subject. Because God is the only being who creates something unique, fresh, and original that nobody's ever thought of or seen before. The point is he's doing something that's never been done before. That's the point. Is he creating nothing? Maybe. Yes. Don't know. That's not the point. The point is, is that he's creating something that no one has ever come up with on their own. We can't create. We can only take what is already there and reform it or put it together in different ways. And so he created the heavens and the earth. So this is a summary. This is what you're going to learn about. What you're going to learn about is how God created the heavens and the earth, and the heavens, sky, and the earth form a mirrorism. And a mirrorism means like that and that, on one end, on the other end, and everything in between. Kind of like I am the alpha and the omega, A to Z. It's not just the beginning and the end, but it's everything in between. It's a way of saying I'm flesh and bone. Well, you're also tissue and blood and and snot and whatever else is in you. But you're using a mirrorism, two parts to refer to the whole. That's what a mirrorism. So God is saying on the day that God created the sky and the earth and everything in between, that's what this is going to be about. And it's not him creating heaven. Heaven already exists. Why? Because God is already there and the angels are already there. This is the beginning of the material realm. So, now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of Yahweh was, or Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So this word God, Elohim, it means King, Almighty, Most High, Sovereign. It is not unique to Yahweh. It is used of other gods. Okay, the angels are called Elohim because they are powerful, king-like divine beings. Marduk, Baal, all those other gods, Ra, they're called Elohim. The word Elohim is just the generic word G-O-D. And we call lots of things G-O-D. It does not make him, what is making the point is that he's king. He's king over creation. If you read that document, there's a lot of Psalms and a lot of Isaiah making the point that God is king, like other gods claim to be king, but he's totally different and unlike all those other gods in the way that he's king. And so this isn't diminishing him by being called the same thing that other gods are being called. The point is he's already standing out as different because he's always existed and he's created everything. And so he is king. And this king describes this earth. And this earth is formless. Three things. It is formless and empty. That's number one. It is formless and empty. Number two is dark. Darkness over the surface of the water. Darkness. And number three is a watery, chaotic abyss. So formless and empty. Number two, darkness. Number three is a watery, chaotic abyss. All three of these terms are really bad terms in the Bible. So let's talk about them. 
Now, the earth as you know it. The point is the earth doesn't look like it does to us. The earth is different. And the earth is being described as this formless and empty, watery, chaotic abyss and darkness. Which, once again, that's a metaphor. It does not make sense. You cannot have watery abyss and chaotic mass. And notice the water already exists. The darkness is already there. If this is the beginning, and God hasn't created in verse 1, then the material realm already exists. Water and darkness is already there. Everything that God needs to create the world is already in that. Now, that shouldn't threaten you. This does not mean that God didn't create matter. Because there are lots of passages that emphasize the fact that God created matter. When you get in the New Testament, it makes it over and over again. That God is the creator of all things. That nothing exists without Him. God, don't feel threatened by this. Okay? Just because one verse doesn't mean what you thought it meant does not mean the whole theology of God is destroyed. God clearly, throughout the Bible, makes it clear that He created all things. He just isn't telling you here where matter came from. The question then is why? As Americans, that would scare us. As a Jew who do not grow up post-enlightenment, they wouldn't think anything of it. What you need to know is this. How did all those creation accounts start? Did you read them? A watery, chaotic, dark void of a mass. That's where he's starting. God is not answer, interested in answering scientifically where matter came from. He's interested in theologically refuting those gods. And all their creation accounts start with void. Formless and empty, there is no life that can be sustained there. The word tahu, formless, is used throughout the Bible of a barren wilderness desert where a man will lose his way and die. And tohu and bohu, those are great little words, okay, tohu and bohu are formless and empty together are used of judgment. Jeremiah 24 says, I will leave you bo- tohu and bohu for your sins. I will deform you and I will empty you as judgments. So the idea is that this planet is void of life. There can be no life here, just like all those other creation counts. So the point is not where did the material realm come from. The point is where did life come from? Okay, where did life come from? And so he starts the same place. Then it's darkness. I don't think I have to explain that too much. Darkness throughout the Bible is bad. God is light and in him there is no darkness. First John chapter 1 verse 5. First John, the gospel, and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was the light of all men. The word came into the darkness, but the darkness did not recognize nor receive the light. Okay, over and over and over again, we are compared to darkness. Darkness is evil, bad, it's not good. It represents sin, but at the same time, darkness can be good. Because we're also told that God clothes himself in darkness to hide his truths from us. That sometimes he comes in the storm and the dark clouds and judgment. And that sometimes when Abraham gets the vision, we're told that God put a darkness over Abram and came in the darkness and began to prophesy to him. And so darkness also sometimes precedes revelation, revealing of true mysteries and truth, which means God doing thing hasn't been revealed yet. It could be negative or it could be that the mysteries of God are under the darkness and are waiting to be revealed, which makes sense because what's going to come out of this? The land, the light, all that kind of stuff. But whatever it is, is life cannot be there. God is not there. 
And so the third thing is the watery abyss. The watery abyss is chaos. And if you read that document, the sea represents chaos. This is why when you get to Daniel 7, the great beasts of Babylon and Persia, they come up out of the raging sea, evil and chaos. Israel is described as a chaotic sea. Egypt is described as a sea. God sends the chaotic sea to destroy the evil of the flood. And then notice in the book of Revelation, it says that God's throne sits on top of a glassy sea. It's so placid and so calm because the point is there's no evil in heaven. There's no chaos in heaven. It's completely subdued to the point that it's like glass. And so the abyss is chaotic and evil. It's chaos. And so the point is this is how every creation account begins. Now what's interesting, you're like, oh, that kind of threatens. Do you mean that in the beginning there was evil and chaos and all this kind of stuff? Where did it come from? No. God has stripped the paganists out of it. This is why it's so important for you to read those other creation accounts. Because in the other creation accounts, the, the chaos is a sea monster. And it is terrible and vicious and scary. And the darkness is threatening. And, and Ra is alone. And he is afraid in the darkness. And he tries to get rid of it. Here it's all neutral. The sea is just chaotic. It's not a mythological beast. It's not a god. God is stripping all that competitiveness out of it all. It's, it's, there's not another God that exists that he has to defeat, that he's scared, and that he might not defeat. Like Baal, you're like, oh my gosh, is he going to win? There's just, it's all neutral. The point that God is making is, yes, in the beginning there was nothing. And there was no order to things. Not in a chaos, evil sense, because this isn't a dragon or a god, but it's chaotic in the sense that there's no order. There's no structure. And it's not darkness in a sinful, evil way. It's just darkness, which means there can be no life. And it's formless and empty, not in a judgment, because there isn't a no sin yet, just that there is no life. The point is, is that the world in the beginning had no life. It had no structure. That's it. There's no God who's scared to death of a sea monster or another God. There's no God who has to battle another dragon or sea monster to prove it's right. In the beginning, it was God, period. And what you read in is a threat to the gods. This just is the nature. And that's it. He's stripping all the mythology out of it. He's, there's no names given to these. The, the water doesn't have a name like Tiamat. The point is, unlike your creation accounts, God isn't threatened. It's just disordered. There's no life. And God is yet to reveal himself. And so all you see is the non-revelation of God, darkness. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing scary. There's nothing to battle. That's it. And this is why God doesn't attempt to explain to you where it all came from. He's making the point that God has nothing to fear. That God has nothing to battle. There is nothing that opposes God. Now, I know that seems weird to us, but at the same time, we're not from that culture. But at the same time, that's way cooler. That makes more of a point about who God is than trying to scientifically figure out how this all works. Okay? And once again, I'm not trying to diminish science. or I'm, I love science, especially quantum physics. Most of it goes over my head, but I love it. But the point is, that's not here. That's not what he's trying to communicate. 
That's, that, this is a different book. Science books are great there, but sometimes I'd like to stop reading and I just go into fantasy, which isn't. So the reality is this is what God's communicating. But notice, when you get to verse 2b, it says, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. The but is the contrast. Something is different. The Spirit of God. Now, the word spirit here is ruach. Okay, ruach can be translated spirit or wind or breath. And so this could be the wind of God. I wouldn't necessarily see this as the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it's not the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying, think like a Jew for a while. A Jew has no concept of the Holy Spirit yet. That's not going to come until like Acts chapter 2. And that's a long way off. For them, the wind. The wind is actively involved. When we get to the, the, ex, um, the flood, and verse chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But a wind of God came and started making the waters recede. When you get to the Exodus, we're told that God sent a wind to part the sea. The wind is also seen in the chariot of God. It says that the wind drove the chariot of God. We're going to see that the winds hold back the judgments and revelation, and then we're going to release them. The wind is seen as a tool of God to do things. He often does salvation through the wind. It's his tool. But at the same time, the Spirit was seen as an energizing thing. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he, well, he didn't actually go in action, but he was supposed to. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, he went in action. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he pulled up his cloak and ran over like 50 miles an hour. The reality is we see the Spirit as an energizing force. And so the best way to probably see this is that this is the wind of God hovering over the surface of the water that is energized by the Spirit of God. And somehow they're working together, but I don't know how. And could we say the Holy Spirit? Yeah, maybe, kind of, but you've got to be careful reading the Second Testament back into the, 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 the First Testament. Yes, is the Holy Spirit probably there and actively involved? Yes. But I'm not told that specifically. I'm just told the wind that is energized by the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the water. And so the point, but the point is that God is the one doing it. And here's the real point. The word water changes from the abyss water to the water used throughout the Bible as a spring of life. Whenever you see raging water, it's chaos. Whenever you see flat, calm, placid water or spring, it's life. And so basically the point is the Spirit of God comes hovering over, and that word hovering is used of a mother bird in other parts of the Bible as hovering over her young or a vulture circling over its dead. You're like, whoa, that's kind of weird, the Holy Spirit. The point is that God's Spirit is encircling, watching. Don't think of dead vulture. Think of watching. Think actively there. Nothing is going to be missed. So here you've got this unlivable, chaotic, disordered. Think disordered. Later after sin, it'll be chaos. Right now it's just disorder. And the Spirit of God comes in and begins to energize creation. And when it energizes, the water loses its disorderness and starts becoming life. And that's the point. Was there a battle? Was there a war? Was there a contest? Was there another God that he had to defeat? The point is, in the beginning, there was just this thing that had no life, and nothing was revealed yet, and nothing was ordered. And God energized his spirit, and in a tranquil, as the deer panteth by the water, creation began to produce life. It is very tranquil, tranquil, it is very peaceful, 
is very uneventful. And that's the point. And that speaks. Because what it does is it speaks to the Jew who thinks that these gods are actually trying to battle evil and chaos and will suffering and chaos ever end in my life? I don't know. Because the gods are still battling it. And they're battling every day. And some days they win and some days they don't. And so there is no hope for me. There is no hope that this evil and suffering will come to in my life. What does God begin? It just was that easy. There's no contest. There's no battle. It's just done. And it wasn't really evil and chaos. It was just disorder. And God began to produce life. So you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to wonder about things. It just is. And to us, it speaks powerfully too, because if God is able to redeem that easily, the disorder, then he is able to easily redeem the disorder and the chaos in your life today. And so what this becomes is the typology for why we can have confidence in God even post-sin. If he was able to do this so easily here, then he can do it again so easily later. And so this becomes a model for what's coming. Does this make sense? What God is going to begin to do is undo these things. What are you going to see? The first thing he does is he describes the world as formless and empty and darkness and a water chaotic abyss. So the first thing he undoes is the third one. He undoes the abyss by sending his spirit over the waters. Then he's going to undo the darkness by speaking light. And then he's going to undo the formlessness and emptiness because on the first three days he's going to form and then in the last three days, he's going to fill what he formed. So he forms light and puts sun, moon, and stars in the light. He's going to form the waters above and below. Then he's going to put fish and birds in the water. And he's going to form the land. He's going to put creatures of the land and humans in the land. And so this is the whole point of the creation account. The other gods, they're battling and battling and battling. And they not only come out of the chaos and evil, which means they are chaos and evil, but then they create out of the chaos and evil, which means creation is chaotic and evil. But the first point that God is making is, I undid it, undid it all. I formed and I filled, I brought light, and I changed the chaos to, this, to order. So that when you come to the planet and your first breath of life, there is no chaos and evil. There is no disorder. Life begins orderly. Life begins without chaos. And this is a very important theological point. In all the pagan accounts, the gods are chaotic because they come out of chaos. The gods create out of chaos and evil. I mean, humans even, they like take the blood of a serpent, squeeze out in the dirt, and humans appear. You're chaotic and evil. So whose fault is it that everything is chaotic and evil? The gods. And who gets punished for it all the time? You do. Here, the first thing that God makes is there is no disorder and chaos. Everything is good. So whose fault is it that there's evil and chaos and disorder in the world? Humans. But who's going to get punished for it? God, through Jesus Christ on the cross. Very different theology. Very deep. I mean, you tried to pull science out of this. You're going to miss. You're going to miss that very important thing. You're going to miss that very important theological point. And we'll keep coming back to this.